So there's a law in our country, and it's, uh, you'd think it's in all 50 states, but it's actually not. But there's this law that says that when you get into a car, you have to wear a seatbelt. You probably know that. Some of you, how many of you grew up uh, where that wasn't always the law? You remember a time when it was like, just get in a car and rattle around and whatever. It's like, cool. Like, I don't know how you're still alive today, but you're here, and you made, you made it through, right? Because I, I mostly grown up remembering it being the law that you have to wear a seatbelt. There's one state in the country where you don't have to by law wear seatbelts. Anyone know which state that is? So everyone guesses Texas. <laughs> like, what's up with Texas? No, I, it's not Texas, although you would think, you know, that makes a lot of sense. You can like carry a revolver on your side or whatever in Texas, but, but no, you have to wear a seatbelt there. It is New Hampshire. That was the other guess. New Hampshire is the only state where you don't have to wear a seatbelt, which is weird because the state motto of New Hampshire is live free and live free or die. Uh, I think it could be live free and die because <laughs> you have the freedom to not wear a seatbelt. But man, it is dangerous if you don't wear a seatbelt. And if you are like a, a teenager in here this morning, you're learning to drive for the first time, huddle up, okay? Cars are really dangerous and seatbelts actually do save lives. Now, all of us probably in the room have heard that before, but I had a moment years ago where I, where I owned that truth. Like, I believed it intellectually, but there was a moment where I owned it. You see, in, in college, I got this, like, sports car. I had this Nissan 240, and it had, the, like, the spoiler on the back, you know, the little fin kind of thing on the back, and it had the lights that, like, flip up, you know, um, and it was red, and it had, like, a leather shifter kind of thing, and it was just awesome, you know, and so it was a fun car, and I didn't always want to wear my seatbelt. It's just lame, you know, why do we have to do that or whatever, and I knew it was the law. I just wasn't always like into it, you know, as an idea. Until um, one night, I was driving with my then girlfriend, now my wife. We were driving through Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, and it was raining one night, and we're going along. And I looked up ahead of me, and I don't know who swerved or exactly how this happened, but there's a semi truck, and there was like a hatchback car, and they bumped one another. And the hatchback car, when I looked up and noticed it, the hatchback car is sort of fishtailing right in front of me. And I'm like, oh, that, that looks bad. And then. Um, the car spun around and now was facing me in, you know, interstate traffic. That's bad when that happens. And I'm like, okay, that's not good. This is, this is going to be, I'm like trying to slow down. Like what's going to happen? This car's facing me. And then all of a sudden, and, and, I, and I, to this day, I don't really know why this happened. But as the car had now spun around, the next thing I saw happen is the car lifted up off the ground up into the air and flipped in the air and landed upside down on, on the, the roof of the car and then spun a bunch on the ground and then slammed into the wall on the side. So I, and it was crazy. It was like a matchbox car, like a toy being thrown into the air, just lifted in the air, flipped, and, and was upside down. So we were like, oh, oh, you know, we're just like, whoa, hold on. So we pull over. Uh, the first car's behind that accident. We, we pull over to the side, and my wife starts praying immediately. And I get out of the car, and I run over to the car to see if, like, you know, are people alive? Like, what is this going to be? And I, and I run up to the car, and, we get, and I get there, and, and uh, I look over into the car, which is, you know, upside down. I look into the car, and there's two ladies sitting in the car, um, and they're, they're upside down. They're both wearing seatbelts, so they're hanging upside down in the driver and the passenger side seat. And so I'm looking through the window at them hanging upside down, and we sort of break the window and, and, and trying to get them out, but the seatbelts aren't moving. They're stuck. 
And uh, this guy, another guy shows up, and apparently he's like a Boy Scout or something because he's got a knife on him. So he, we pull, he pulls out this knife, and what we do is we, we uh, reach in and we cut the seatbelt off of, off of the lady in the, in the passenger seat or whatever. Um, and so she was able to kind of get free of the car upside down, and then we were like, the, the doors were stuck. They weren't going to open. And, so, and, and both of the, the, the ladies looked kind of bloodied up a little bit. Um, and I was like, hey, c- come out the back of the car. So it was like a hatchback car. So we kind of smashed out the rest of the window, which was already kind of shattered. We smashed that out and, and helped pull them, uh, both of these ladies, out the back of the hatch of the vehicle. And then they were able to come out and they were a little disoriented. And we sort of walked away from them. And, and as we were walking away, the, the car exploded. That didn't happen really, actually, that part. <laughs> I just thought that sounded awesome, right? Like, we fell to the ground, and there's an explosion. It was amazing. No, that part didn't happen. The rest of the stuff's true, though, I promise. Um, <laughs> so uh, we, we get out, and, and, um, and I was amazed that they were alive. Um, and, and, and in that moment, I, I thought, man, that car just was flung through the air like a toy. And the reason they're alive is because the seatbelt held them right into that seat the whole time. And maybe you've had that experience. You've maybe been in the car accident and experienced that. Maybe you've seen an accident up close and, and it, it sort of jarred you into reality. But for me, it was, it was a little, it was a moment of like, oh, seatbelts are really important. And I don't care how tough you think you are, cars are bigger than you. And, and if they go off the rails or if they, if they start to fly through the air or whatever, they will launch you like you're nothing. And uh, that was a moment where intellectually I believed I should wear seatbelts. But as far as taking an action on that and really doing something about it, that was the moment for me of like, oh, I'm definitely wearing a seatbelt when I'm in a car because I've seen... Um, what it could do. And I want to tell you uh, an account today from the book of John about Jesus. And if you've been in a church at all, or maybe if you haven't been in a church, you've still probably heard what I'm going to tell you today. But I think this week about the crucifixion we're going to talk about, and next week about the resurrection of Christ, I think it's, it can easily fall into one of those, those accounts where you're just kind of like, oh yeah, I've heard that already. I already know that story. I believe that. Or maybe, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But for a lot of us, we sort of believe it up here, but it hasn't really infected our heart and it hasn't, hasn't changed our actions in any way. We just sort of go intellectually, yes, that's true. Check, I understand it, believe it, fine. But it hasn't moved us and it hasn't changed us. And so my, my hope and my, my goal here in the next two Sundays is to, is to walk you through this. And, and my hope is that it will change you, that it'll motivate you to action like I am now motivated to wear a seatbelt, uh, that you will say, okay, there's something here in this. Um, so we've been looking through the book of John, uh, and we've been studying it since last February, actually. So over a year, we've been off and on through the book of John, and we're now here at the crucifixion and, and next Sunday for Easter at resurrection. Isn't that crazy how that worked out? We're going to be on the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday. How did that work out? Uh, crazy. Um, but uh, Jesus, uh, as we lead up to this crucifixion, Jesus is going to be crucified on a cross, and he predicted this would happen. He mentions it at, at different points throughout the book of John that he's going to die on a cross. And if you think about it, if you're going to predict your own death, that's really difficult to do, especially with something like a crucifixion. Like if I said, I'm going to die next Friday, I could go jump off a bridge and make that true. But if you're going to die at the hands of the Roman government, if they're going to crucify you on a cross next Friday, and you've been planning that and knowing about that for years, that's a little more difficult to orchestrate. And yet, that's what we see going on here. Jesus is, is working the timing of this whole thing so that he will die during the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. Um, and he's going to die on, the, on that Friday on a cross. He doesn't fight it. He, he allows himself to be, to be crucified. So 
two weeks ago, I talked to you about the conversation he had with Pontius Pilate, and then Tommy walked you through last Sunday, he walked you through uh, the implications about power in, in that conversation that they had. And so I want to uh, take it over to take you right to the crucifixion account from the book of John, starting in John 19, we'll, we'll start with verse 16. It says, so he delivered him over over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. All right, Jesus um, has already been flogged at this point. He's been beaten. They, they take a, a, like leather straps and they put bone and metal in it and they whip people with it so that the bone and the metal get stuck in your skin and tear it off. Um, and so his skin has been just beaten, and, and you know, the straps, will, if you beat someone in the back, the straps will wrap around and pull from the front as well. So his torso is just bloodied up. They put a crown of thorns on his head, um, bloodied there as well. And then uh, of all the pain of that, then they make him carry the cross beam of, of a cross, right? This big, heavy bar. They make him carry that through the city. Uh, you can see this, and you can see kind of the route of that in Jerusalem even to this day. Uh, it carries it through the city, and then outside the city walls is where they would um, attach that crossbeam. They would attach him to that cross, so they would he would have to carry that crossbar. And then when he got outside, and they're going to put him up on the cross, they put large nails through the wrists. Uh, and through the ankles put together so that you would hang on a cross and they'd put you up on the cross and hang there. You hang kind of on your skeletal system. Uh, You're just kind of hanging there low. It's very hard to breathe. And so in order to breathe when you're on the cross, you have to push yourself up, which is super painful in the wrists and the the ankles. And and it's really... um, just a brutal public execution that the Romans had, had devised. Um, and, and, and Jesus goes through that. Um, and and it's, it's bloody, it's harsh. And a lot of preachers have over the years gone through and described it in detail. I, I sort of think since The Passion of the Christ came out about a dozen years ago, that movie, um, you can just go watch that if you want to see what this looked like. I don't need to describe it to you in detail. In fact, this being Holy Week, maybe it would be a good week to watch it. And even this, did you notice on the marquee of the Bird Theater when you came in today, it says Passion of the Christ. I was like, how did they know we were going to be talking about that today at the Bird? But they're showing that movie here at 7.15 tonight. So, and maybe other times during this week, I don't know. But if you're interested, uh, come check it out. Don't buy popcorn. You won't want to watch this with popcorn. It's, it's a rough it's a rough film. In fact, um, I was talking about um, wanting to show it to my kids at some point, and I had asked uh, the other people on staff at, at Area 10, I said, do you think I should show this to my kids? And they're like, no, no, that is, that is too rough for, for, for kids. Uh, and it is. It's, it's, it's hard to watch uh, Jesus being crucified and, and what they did. And it's brutal. And I remember when Mel Gibson made the film, they, I remember watching him in an interview. They, they said to him, hey, this is really violent and dark. Um, were you tempted to tone it down so that people wouldn't experience how brutal it was? And he said, I always remember this, he said, we did tone it down. So what you're seeing isn't even as bad as it was. So uh, it's, it's rough how the crucifixion was done in the ancient world. And, and so John gives us a few other details. John is the last of the four gospel writers to write this. They've all included some details. He, he adds a few more here. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So 
Jesus was crucified on the outside of the city, and along, uh, along the outside would be the road where travelers are going to go through the, through the ancient world, through the Middle East there, and, and, and they're going to go by Jerusalem. And so what the Romans would do, you don't want to crucify someone in the town, you'd put them out there by the road so that everybody walking by can see this criminal on the cross, can see what the mighty Roman Empire does to people that they don't like. And so they put a sign above him that says, King of the Jews, um, as if to say, from the Roman perspective, it's as if to say, hey, uh, you don't, don't claim to be king. There's only Caesar. He's, he's our ruler. You can't claim to be that because if you do, this is what happens to you. And in fact, they wrote it in multiple languages so that anybody traveling by could see what's this guy on the cross for. Oh, he claimed to be king of the Jews. Now, the Jews themselves didn't like that. The, the, the religious leaders said to Pontius Pilate, hey, can you change the sign so it doesn't say king of the Jews? Like, they want to build some separation. They're like, hey, we don't think he's king of the Jews, just so we're clear, you who are putting people on crosses, just so we're clear, we don't think he's the king. Uh, could you just put the sign to say, like, he claimed to be the king of the Jews? And Pilate is like, nah, whatever I did is what I did. Like, leave it alone. It's just, it's just going to stay. All right, continuing Continuing uh, on, um, verse uh, where are we? Verse twenty-three. Uh, when the soldiers, uh, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts: one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, "Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be." This was to fill the, fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. This is actually uh, a fulfillment of an Old Testament scripture, and he mentioned, John mentions it here, Psalm 22. Read Psalm 22 this week. You've heard Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want that, that, that whole psalm. The one right before it, Psalm 22, uh, is really in the backdrop of the crucifixion, uh, and, and that's a quote from it, and you'll see Psalm 22 show up again here in something that Jesus says on the cross. So Psalm 22 is in Jesus's mind, and it's certainly in John's commentary as he writes about what happened. Look at verse 25, continuing on. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus is on the cross, and if you piece together, John only records a couple things Jesus says there, but if you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and scholars have done this, and they, and they estimate as you, as you put this all together, Jesus said seven things when he was on the cross. And, and if we're actually going to put them in the order that he said them, using these and John and a few others, uh, this is what he said and in what order. And you may have, if you've grown up in a church, you may have heard that Jesus said these things. Sometimes preachers will do entire sermons on each one of these things. I just want to go through them here quickly. Number one, Jesus says on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So forgiving the people who are killing him, he's doing that while on the cross. Number two, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He says to the thief on the cross next to him, he says that. Okay. Number three, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. That's the conversation that we just read where he looks at his own mother who's now going to be without her son. Uh, 
who's dying on the cross, and he turns to John, one of his closest friends and disciples. He says, John, take care of my mother. Mom, you and John, like, make it like it's, like it's family, right? So he's, he's providing for his mother even as he's dying on the cross. Number four, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the opening line from Psalm 22. He's quoting Psalm 22 on the cross. Um, number five, I thirst. John records that here. Number six, he says, it is finished. And number seven, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, what do you notice as you look at the seven things he says on the cross? How does he address them? Who does he address them to? Look at the first one and the last one. Who is that addressed to? Father, right? He's, it's, it's a family relationship. He's the son of God talking to his father. Father, forgive them. And at the very end, he says, Father, into my hands I commit your spirit. But notice right in the middle of the fourth thing he says on the cross, he doesn't say Father. What does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on there? Well, theologians teach, and, and, and I think this makes a lot of sense, this is the moment on the cross for Jesus where he's experiencing the most pain. And it's not physical pain. Yes, crucifixion's physically painful, but he doesn't um, complain about that. He doesn't make noise about that. Uh, what he's experiencing here is intense spiritual and emotional pain because he is separated from his heavenly father. He's experiencing a distance from his heavenly father to the point that he says, my God, my God, he's not even like, it's not even like the family thing anymore. He's just like, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me here? Why is there a distance now between us? Because he's always lived in harmony with his heavenly father. And in this moment on the cross, he uh, experiences uh, the pain of separation from, from God. What's going on there? Really what's happening in that moment is the heart of what the cross is, is all about. The story of Christianity is this. You and I are sinners. We've messed up. You've done it. I've done it. All of us. We've blown it. We've burned relationships, and our sin causes separation. I've sinned against other people, and that causes separation between me and them. I've sinned against myself, and it causes me to be internally divided and causes a brokenness inside me. And I've sinned against God, where as my heavenly father, I have burned his children and, and I have broken relationship between me and, and my heavenly father. So there's kind of different things going on there with my sin. And the message of Christianity is that you are a sinner and that Jesus in this moment on the cross pays for your sin. He makes it so that you can be in a right relationship with God. He takes all of the sins of all of humanity and history. They're all dumped on him, and he experiences a darkness, a separation from God in that moment. And he does that so that you don't have to be punished for your sin. He's punished, he's the righteous man punished for the unrighteous, all of us, so that we can be righteous, so that we can be adopted into the family of God, so that we can be made right and stand before God because our sin has been dealt with by a God who is loving, who loves us so much he doesn't want to punish us, but he's also just, who's not just going to wipe it away and says, no, uh, we need to do the just thing and, and the sin must be punished. Now, if you're a skeptic, or you're not a Christian, or maybe you haven't heard it explained that way or whatever, uh, that whole thing sounds weird, doesn't it? I mean, let's just be honest about it. To a 21st century American ears, the idea, like, it's like, hey, you're a sinner, you know, and you might be like, no, I'm not. So there's first, there's a, a hurdle 
of like acknowledging that. Well, okay, maybe I'll acknowledge that I'm a sinner, but why does it need to be like atoned for or like this sounds so barbaric, there's like blood sacrifice, this is very like, you know, is this like on a Mayan ruin at the top of a temple and someone's ripping a heart out? Like this is weird that we're having blood sacrifices. What is going on with all that? And, and even if I accepted that Jesus died like this, the idea that he could pay for my sins is weird. Like, I mean, I could go to jail for you. Like, you may have done something where you deserve to go to jail, and I could say, hey, I'm going to take your place in jail, and maybe someone would let me do that. But, like, just because you didn't do the time doesn't mean you did do the crime. Like, you're still guilty. There's no way that me taking your jail sentence means you're not guilty. You're still guilty. It doesn't absolve you of your guilt. And, and normally I would say, yeah, all of that is true, but this is a different thing. We're talking about God himself taking on our sin uh, and, and, and taking on uh, our punishment. This is ultimate uh, justice. And, and it's the heart of, of what Christ does for us on, on the cross. Um, he defeats our sin and defeats sin in the world. Um, and and we, don't, we don't get that, you know. We, we, we forget that there's a brokenness here between us and God, between us and other people. Um, we sin against others. We sin against God. We don't just break God's rule. We actually break God's heart in, in all of this stuff. Um, now, we, we tend to minimize it, though, right? We're going to say, like, okay, so I sinned, whatever that means. All right, but what's the big deal? So I told some lies once. I dishonored my mother. I treated that girl badly that one time. There was that one thing I did in college. There's like, oh, at work, a little bit, a little time theft, a little, I drank a little too much in this night, whatever. Like you got this list and you go, really, what's the big deal? I didn't hurt anybody or if I did, it wasn't that big of a deal and we're kind of over it now. And we sort of minimize our sin and we don't understand the darkness that's in us. We don't understand the evil that is in us and in the world. And when you're gonna defeat evil, sacrifices are made. Somebody or something's going to die when evil is defeated. That's historically always how it's been. Think about the greatest evil you can imagine sort of in world history over the last 100 years. Who's a, who's a prominent sort of political figure that you're like, oh, this is darkness. Probably Hitler, right? That's probably where we go. So you go, okay, that's, that's evil. And, 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 and so how was that defeated? Like Hitler rolls into Poland in 1939, and it's not like the whole world was like, oh, well, they went into Poland, no big deal. Let's just pretend that never happened. Let's just love each other and it's just going to be fine. No. People have been violated here. There's been an injustice. And you don't just wipe an injustice away and go, it just never happened. That's not how it works. The way evil was defeated was a bunch of men stormed a home, Omaha Beach and were slaughtered. People died, sacrifices. People gave up their lives to defeat evil. That's how it works. And the greater the evil, the greater the sacrifice. That's how it's worked historically. You can't just say, Hitler rolled into Poland, let's have a bake sale and be done with it and just be nice to each other. And if we were only a little nicer, it'll be fine. No, there's an injustice here and it has to be dealt with. And in the same way, Christ defeats sin on, on the cross. I mean, think of it this way. If you, if you hurt my kids, okay, we have a problem between you and I if you hurt one of my kids, right? Now, you can ask for forgiveness and I can forgive you, um, but what we can't do is pretend that nothing bad happened at all. 
You know, if there's, if there's a brokenness, if there's damage done, if there's a sin against someone, we can't pretend and just wipe it away and pretend it never happened. It happened. And either you're going to pay for it to fix it, or I'm going to pay for it and, and forgive you. But, but something there needs to happen. Someone will have to pay. And in the same way, our sin has caused damage, and we can't pretend it never happened. Somebody will pay. And in this case, Jesus Christ pays for our sin on the cross. You see this when Jesus says that the sixth thing he said on the cross. He said, it is finished. The Greek word for it is finished, I'll put it up on the screen, tetelestai. Preachers talk about this word all the time when they're talking about this. And it's an important word that is translated into it is finished. The Greek word telos is in there, and it, it means plan or design. And that's important to remember. When Jesus dies on the cross, he's not saying, when he says it is finished, he's not saying, all right, game over. I'm, uh, I guess this is done. He's saying, my plan is, is completed. I've done the thing I set out to do. That's amazing if you think about it. Here's someone who's, who's been whipped with a crown of thorns, pierced through the hands, um, put up on a cross, sword in his side, all of that stuff. He's just beaten down in this brutal public execution. And if you saw Jesus being crucified, you would think he's powerless and helpless because the Romans are doing it to him. And yet, even in that moment, he stands up there and he says, I have done this. I have completed the work that I set out to do. That's, that's really profound. What has he done? Well, he's, he's died for our sins. The, the apostle Peter, who was, who was there and saw this go down, listen to what he, he wrote many years later in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, for Christ, talking about what he saw in Jesus, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive, but made alive in the spirit. Peter saw it and he said, this is what was going on. Jesus, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous, us. Why? To bring us to God, to bring us into a right relationship with God. Jesus did for you and I what we could not do for ourselves. He made a, a way for us to, to reach God and to be in relationship with him for all eternity. Now, this is very different than other religions of the world. I need you to understand this. It is so popular in our culture to act like all religions are the same or they're basically the same or fundamentally the same. They are very different, especially on this point. If you look at the Buddhist eightfold path to reach nirvana, it is do this, do this, check this box, and you will reach this spot. If you look at Islam, there's these five pillars. You do these things uh, to be a good Muslim. If you look at Judaism, uh, there's following these laws, the Old Testament, follow them perfectly, and then God will be pleased with you. All of these systems work with do the thing, and then you get rewarded. Uh, you know, check these boxes, and God will finally be happy enough with you. And what we see here on the cross is something so different. I, 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 saw, I saw it in Islam this week. I was in Turkey this week, just got back a couple days ago. And uh, it's 99% Muslim country. So uh, we were, you know, kind of in the city, and you hear the, the prayers start to go over the loudspeakers and people praying all over the city. And, I, and, and I'm not around a lot of Muslims here in Richmond, so this was a, a, an experience. I was like, okay, what's going on? Let's talk about it. And so I asked someone about the prayer hours throughout the day when they're praying over the loudspeaker. And I said, do, do Muslims all go to the mosque to pray? Because I would see some people come out of the mosque after the prayer time, and then other, but not many. And I'm like, where's everyone else? Like, there's a lot of people here. What are they doing? And he said, well, a lot of businesses will close for a couple minutes while they pray, or people will pray in their homes or whatever. The, the people will do it kind of all over. I said, well, well, why would you go to the mosque and pray instead of just praying at home? 
And they said, well, and basically the answer was, it kind of depends on how well you're doing with Allah, you know, like if you've been good lately, you kind of don't need to go to mosque, you know, if you've been kind of doing your prayers, doing the thing, giving alms, you know, like earn, literally they, they use the phrase like you've been like earning points, then you don't need to go. But if you haven't been good, so good lately, then maybe you'd need to actually physically go to the, to the building. And I, and I just saw it again. I was like, oh, here's one more system of like earn the points, check the boxes, win the thing. And if you do enough of it, then God will be pleased with you. And this is fundamentally different than what Jesus is saying on the cross here. He is doing something for you that you will never be able to do for yourself. You cannot earn enough points to get into heaven. Um, he's, he's changing it. And in fact, uh, I, I read this about the Buddha. There's different translations of this, so it's hard to be entirely sure. But looking at what the Buddha said before he died... Um, and then comparing it with what Jesus says before he dies. Because the last thing the Buddha is supposed to have said, and various translations kind of the way they word it, but the Buddha said to the person who was taking care of him, he said, strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing. In other words, make sure you stay with it. Keep after it. Keep working hard. Earn this thing. How different is that? than what Jesus says when he goes, I've done it. Buddhism says, you're going to have to finish the work. You're going to have to go get it, make it happen. And Christianity says, don't strive. Don't, don't try to make it happen. You're not going to make happen what I've already done for you. It doesn't mean we, we don't pray and serve and give and all of those things, but we do them out of a different motivation. We're not doing them to earn the favor that we already have from God. We're doing that because we are loved children and we want to love back and we want to serve and we want to give. It's an outflow of the love that we have been, we've been given. So what do we do with all that? What do we do with this cross thing? Well, number one, if you're not a Christian, I want you to understand that Jesus has died for you. I want you to get that. And get baptized in him. Give your life to him and accept his sacrifice for you. Uh, people who become Christians, they're immersed in water. We do that all the time here as a church. And, and, and I would love for that to happen with, with you as well. Give your life to him and, and be baptized. And we can have a conversation right on your connection card. We can go to lunch. We can go get coffee. We can talk about it or whatever. Let, let's talk about this. And, um, because I, there's nothing more important in the world than, than what we're talking about here. So if, you, if you're not a Christian, that would be a next step I would suggest for you. If you are a Christian, let me ask you this question. Do you really believe what I'm saying here today? Like, do you believe that Jesus was crucified this way and he was crucified for your sins, not the guy next to you or someone else, but your, the stuff you've done? Do you believe that? Because if, if you do it, it should actually transform you, not just inform you. It's not just like, oh, that's interesting. It actually should change the way you live, sort of like me watching the car accident change the way I, I, I live with approach to a seatbelt. Um, do you believe it now, like I believe in the value of a seatbelt? Do you believe in the crucifixion? Um, well, how would you know if you really get it or you really believe it? I, I think two things and then we're done. Um, if, if the crucifixion's really gotten into your veins and you, and you understand it, what Jesus has done for you, number one, I think you would be less, less self-righteous. Christians get a really bad reputation on this point. Christians uh, get, in culture, 
tend to get into this spot of like, uh, these people are doing this thing wrong and they're bad and they're evil and they should stop doing that and they should, you know, it's kind of unstated, but it's like they should be more like me who doesn't do those things. Um, and not just Christians, really all, um, I, I would say all religious people get this way, but people just in general get this way, uh, and, and religious or not. And, and we kind of get into this thing of like uh, being very self-righteous. I'm doing it right, you're doing it wrong. And, and why do we do that? Here's why I think we do that, because I see it online all the time. I, I've seen it in my own life at times as well. Here's why we want to throw stones at other people. I think the reason we do it is because holiness is hard. Change is hard. Growth is hard. Transformation is hard. Being who God calls you to be is hard. But you know what's easy? Just putting yourself in, um, making yourself like better than someone else and saying they're wrong, I'm a little bit better. Like getting an A is hard. If I could get a, a solid C and they grave it on the curve, we're good, <laughs> right? That's, that's what we do. And so rather than deal with my own sin uh, and deal with my own issues that I'm working through, it's way easier for me to just say, you're sinning more. Rather than be transformed, I just want to be right. I'd re- so many of us fall into this trap. We would just rather be right than change and grow and transform. And, 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 and so we, we camp out there, you know, oh, you shouldn't say the things you do, and I ignore my own potty mouth. Hey, you're struggling sexually with this thing that I don't struggle with. Let's keep the focus on the thing you're struggling with so no one notices the stuff that I'm struggling with as well. It's so much easier. And, 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 and if we understand the crucifixion, we would understand that our righteousness and how awesome we are is not the issue. It's how good and righteous Christ was and that he died for our sins. So... We should be, we would be less self righteous if we understood the cross. We would understand that we stand before him because of what he has done, and we would have peace, and we would stop white knuckling everything. We would receive the love of God and the forgiveness of God like a loved child. We wouldn't receive it like someone who's constantly interviewing for a job and constantly trying to impress. So, so one, I think we would be less self-righteous and then connected to that, number two, if we understand the cross, we would be more gracious. You see this with the Apostle Paul. Paul wasn't there at the crucifixion, but he was later taught by Jesus post-resurrection. And Paul was a guy who had Christians killed. He was very against Christianity. He was very against this Jesus thing until he had an encounter with Jesus himself and radically transformed his life. And Paul goes and plants churches in Greece, in Turkey, in various places around the the Mediterranean. Paul becomes one of the most vocal evangelists and missionaries and church planters that the world has ever seen. And so his life has been transformed. And if you read Paul throughout the New Testament, because he wrote about half of the New Testament, what you'll see is that does Paul judge people? Does he tell people to stop doing certain things? Does he point out behaviors and attitudes and beliefs and stuff and challenge them? Absolutely. In fact, sometimes Paul writes people's names down who have blown it. How would you like that on your record? You get to heaven and be like, well, Paul wrote, actually wrote your name down, dude. Like you were such a pain in the butt. Paul wrote your name down. I, I, I mean, as Paul is writing these letters, you know, does, is he aware, like, we're going to be reading them thousands of years later? You know, was he like, oh, this guy's been driving me crazy? And, and God's like, hey, Paul, write that guy's name down. And Paul's like, really? You want me to, like, throw this guy under the bus for eternity? I mean, uh, all right, I'll write his name down, you know? Like, how would you like to be that guy? But Paul, sure, he challenges people, and he, and he gives some, some stuff that's hard for us to read, even now. That's like, whoa, 
This is intense. But you see this thread throughout Paul's life. You see this theme, a a, a graciousness about him. A, A man full of truth, yes, but full of grace. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, as he writes this letter to Timothy. He says, hey, Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. What's up with that? I mean, you've got Jesus, and then you've got like Paul, like the most influential figure in the history of Christianity besides Jesus himself, is probably Paul who planted all these churches and and, and did all these things for Christ. And he refers to himself as the worst of sinners. Man, if Paul's the worst of sinners, what what hope do the rest of us have? But here's what I think is going on here. He gets it, and he understands. He has been forgiven much. He knows he has a past. He's not lying about that. He's not stuck there. He's not like beating himself up forever. He's been forgiven by God, but he is aware, hey, the only reason I can even have a shot at being righteous is because what Jesus has done for me on the cross. And it makes him a a man of, of grace when you realize that you're not perfect either. You thank God for the cross. Man, as I get older, uh, I value this even more. Like, I, I hope when people look at my life or when my life is done and, and they describe me, they say, Chris was, what, funny, Chris was this, Chris was, you know, there's lots of things that I would value being a risk taker, bold, courageous, you know, aiming, aiming high, a, a bold follower of Jesus. Like, I'd love people to say all of those things, but as I get older, the thing I value the, the most, I think, is that people would just say I'm gracious, That yes, he's someone who's full of truth, but also full of grace. Wouldn't that be fantastic? I I think people who are full of grace, those are the kind of people that you want to know, that you want to follow after. People who don't act like they're better than you. Christians should never act like we're better than other people. The only people you're better than is yourself a year ago. If you want to compare to anybody, compare to who you used to be. And that's what Paul does. Right? Let's be people who are full of grace. That's where the impact is going to come. Yes, we'll have impact from taking risks and being bold and, and, and dreaming big dreams for God and all of those things, but I think the greatest impact will be when we are people of grace who, who, who are gracious towards ourselves and, and gracious towards others. Let's pray. God, I thank you for um, your son dying on the cross that we celebrate here today. We celebrate it, we acknowledge it as, as the truth that we are sinners and that you've made a way for us to be with you. God, may we be people who are not self-righteous about any of that, but people who are full of grace towards ourselves and towards others. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.